2: Before this episode of the Funnel Word podcast, a quick thank you to the Funnel Word sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. Do me a favor. Before this episode begins, before the fabulous Final Word theme thanks to Earthboy, head to Sidewinder Life on Instagram. That's Sidewinder Life. It's the latest from Brick Lane Brewing. Sidewinder Hazy Pale Ale. Super tasty and Brick Lane's first low alcohol beer. Get this, the IWSR. What is the IWSR, you ask? Well, I didn't know either, so I Googled them. They provide stats for the drinks market. They're the beverage industry scorekeeper. Anyway, their research found that 65% of Australians, 65% of legal drinking age Australians, are looking for a low or no alcohol option in 2021. Find it at Dan Murphy's in Australia. Tell them the final word sent you. The folks at Dan Murphy's won't really know what that means, unless, of course, they listen to this podcast, but Brick Lane will and that's all that matters. Also, keep your eyes open for new Brick Lane Final Word artwork. The team at Brick Lane has taken the classic Final Word image and given it a Brick Lane makeover. You're going to love it. Remember, you can find everything Final Word related at FinalWordCricket.com. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemmon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell
3: you. This is the final word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for another week. Uh, I'm in London. Jeff's in Melbourne. To be precise, I'm in South London at the Oval looking out across this famous old ground. One of my favourites. It's where we have interviewed Felix White about his beautiful stunning new memoir it's always summer somewhere that's coming up later in the show we won't do too much off the front we're both busy boys at the moment indeed i can see on my tv screen here the rock climbing which is jeff one of the many events you were commentating for the guardians live blog earlier we've both been inundated with olympics work and it's been a wonderful experience i've had such a great time uh, learning about some of the new sports and reconnecting with some that i loved as a child it's uh, yeah i'm going to be sad when it's over
0: the speed climbing, I think you'll find. Uh, no, the sports climbing. Sports climbing. Sports climbing, sorry. Yes. It's broken down into three categories, the speed climbing, the bouldering, and the lead. These are things that I learned about today. This is definitely the coverage I've known least about before doing professionally because I'd forgot <laughs> it was on, and then it came up, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to level with everybody on the blog. I don't know how this works. Here's what they're doing. This is what it looks like. Can anybody tell me what's going on? And you know how like, sometimes you get a lot of emails and sometimes you get no emails. Mm. I've never had more emails on the blog in a shorter space of time. There must be a massive untapped world of sports climbers out there who were all keen to let me know about the auto belay system and whether it, how much tension it provided and how it auto locked when you fell off and all the questions I had, they got answered right away. It was beautiful. I've just watched
3: a guy scamper up a wall uh, from Mm. Spain in 6.48 seconds before banging the red button Mm. to say that it's all over. And that looks pretty bloody impressive, knowing that I went to many sort of school trips to rock climbing centres and never quite got Uh the hang of it. Yeah, this strikes me as the kind of sport
0: where you need to be very strong through the core. The thing I will tell you, because we have a full disclosure policy on this show, is... When they said on the coverage that I was covering earlier that it was a 15-metre wall, I misheard that as a 50-metre wall. And so I was like... bloody hell these guys can climb 50 metres in 6.5 seconds and then a bloke came along and did it in 5.7 and I'm like this is almost as fast as 100 metres on the flat they should have these guys in the 100 metres final on the track doing it doing it on all fours and they'd be like you know farewell Ben Johnson see you later Usain Bolt get through in bloody 9.2 um, uh, only later did I realise that it was that it was implausible that it was a 50 metre wall and we did we did clarify that
3: yeah yeah, maybe that maybe there should be the fifty meter wall and the fifteen meter wall at the next Olympics. Yeah. It's like the old uh, ninety four meter track thing from the games that they, they go. What? So there'll be a new event then, the ninety four meters. Well, actually, it'll be two new events: the ninety four meters for men and the ninety four meters for women. <laughs> <laughs> that Brian Doerr add in there. (laughs) Jeff, uh, I mentioned we've got a Fee coming up, which is uh, is a lovely chat, so stick around for that. Uh, I mentioned it's a busy week. We've got England and India starting tomorrow, which is a huge test series. Uh, I'm looking Mm. forward to broadcasting that for SCN back to Australia and New Zealand. But in some respects, a series, Jeff, that hasn't received loads of attention because over here, at least, there's been the 100, of course, the Olympics, Mm -hmm. the Euros before that. We've already had quite a bit of international cricket so far this season, so it's not an afterthought or anything like that. It just hasn't been the usual build-up to what is absolutely a marquee series.
0: There hasn't been the bandwidth to think about it. It's the least that I've thought about a massive major test series ever in the lead-up. And mm. Maybe it was because we expected that the Olympics might be a bust or get cancelled after two days, and miraculously they've managed to not have to have the, the thing called off on health grounds, even though things are pretty grim outside the Olympic wire, as it were. But is happening and the attention is there and it's it's pretty difficult to you know, have attention paid to cricket uh, like Australia's Bangladesh T20 series that is not even on TV in Australia and I don't think anyone's going to notice because the Olympics are on and it's a pretty hard time to try to sell a, a cricket series I imagine and
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah the, I suppose so. Yeah, I mean with, with England and, and India, uh, it, it's worth just noting that Ben Stokes won't be playing in any of the five test matches he's called an end to his summer uh, on mental health grounds and, and look, that was surprisingly really well received, and I look. That's probably a, a slightly negative uh, way of explaining it from me, but yeah, it really was like everyone's like, okay, fair cop. Like there wasn't the kind of you know mm. the the hushed tones of oh well you know come on he's mm. good he, he, you know he, he's mentally healthy enough to play in white ball cricket why can't he play? And you know, like people were across the board pretty relaxed about the fact that this guy's put his hand up and isn't prepared to. Go through the rigmarole of bubbles again. He's still carrying, of course, a, an injured finger from earlier in the summer, which he needs to recuperate from fully. Mm. And yes, it's a big out from, a, from an England team balance perspective. Yes, he's a huge name. Yes, he's a match winner. But uh, there is a broad acceptance that he's doing the right thing for the right reasons. And he'll be back later in the summer.
0: I'd be curious to know whether some of the um, absolute numpties who got stuck into Simone Biles for pulling out of (laughs) an event where she can land on her head from about four metres up in the air take that sports climbing... Whether they would be any uh, any more lenient towards someone like Ben Stokes for reasons that you can probably deduce i 'll note that she um, she got back on the beam tonight and won a medal you know as you do yes. after a few days of absolutely intense pressure and all of the rest of it just popped back out and won another olympic medal and um away you go and look she might
3: retire tomorrow and it 's okay i reckon like i just, i just feel mm. as though that was a really special part of um, of the, of the competition today at the at the olympics uh, that that she came back and uh and uh, was able to perform in that event. But even if she hadn't, have, it, it was uh, as you say, it was the way she was criticised last week. It's a reminder that there are still some some segments of the commentary who haven't quite entirely got their their, their heads around the idea of uh, mental health being just as important as physical health to perform at your best. And yeah, Ben Stokes had the presence of mind to to say that yes, this wasn't going to work for him. And also, it's a it's a timely reminder. As last week, Jeff, we were referring to the the conversation around the. England families and the challenges that might be there probably not by the way you mm-hmm. know I, I think in all probability as we discussed last week this will be resolved but if the players weren't able to have their families there and they were put back into a bubble we shouldn't dismiss that as just kind of like a a non-event that that will be a big deal mm. and yeah I, I'm hopeful that it doesn't come to that of course but but it might and if it does I hope that there's a a level of respect and regard for what these athletes have been through away from their families and loved ones in the last 15, 16, 17 months.
0: My Agarwal won't be in the first test either. Got whacked in the head in training, yeah. so it might be a comeback for... Kale Rahul, King Legend Rahul, Kuala Lumpur Rahul, um, the uh, the man, the myth, the legend. And I hope and, uh, so. Remember
3: the last Test match he played in England was the one out here. Remember the oh the, yeah the, the yeah the ostentatious century on the final day chasing about four sixty odd, and at the tea break on day five it looked like he and Rashad Pant were going to chase it down. So I've always been a fan of uh, King Legend. So I hope that um,
0: I hope they do pick him. What about Chris Wokes, the most handsome man in England? Uh, missing for what reason? What's wrong with, with Wokes? A bad heel for Chris
3: Wokes. Oh. So he came back and played in those one-day internationals against Sri Lanka and run a mark. And then he got caught up in the in the COVID self-isolation bit. But, yeah, mm. he's, he's not fit to play this week. So I'd imagine that means Sam Curran bats seven. I mean, he was player of the series three years ago where he was batting eight. But, yeah, Curran at seven. Butler, mm. of course, back at number six, he didn't play against New Zealand. He was one of the players who, who missed out due to the IPL and coming back from the IPL. So it's a stronger England yep. team uh, than the one that lost 1-0 to New Zealand a couple of months ago. But yeah, I must say that even accounting for that, India have been here for the whole summer. I mean, yes, they haven't played a lot of cricket in the build-up to this This series They played the the tour game A couple of weeks ago But even the fact that That Ashwin turned out And took six wickets for Surrey In a first class game Two weeks ago They really have (laughs) acclimatised They've been enjoying Their English summer Those of whom Didn't get an injury Or get COVID along the way So yeah I think that Well they'll be uh, They'll they'll be hard to beat That's for sure
0: Hmm well, once it actually gets started, I'll be very interested in it. Maybe maybe it's going to be more difficult during that first test where there's a fair bit of Olympic stuff going on at the same time. We also had the crossover, the Olympic uh, cricket crossover with the Australian squad in Bangladesh watching uh, Brandon Stark, Mitchell's brother, going over the high jump. What an event, by the way. It's just oh, there's a bar, you, you, you just run up and jump over it. Like, I mean, it's a deceptively simple thing for humans to try to do. (laughs) Brandon Stark came in fifth. I can't remember who noted this, but he's got this unique ability to look both exactly like and nothing like Mitchell Stark at the same time but you know he, he put in he put on a good show he was he was in uh, in contention for medals until late and then of course we had the bromance of the the shared gold between the italian and the qatari uh you know when when's the last time that an italian and a qatari got together to such good effect yeah was, maybe uh, was maybe, maybe around
3: see. the yeah maybe around the fifa votes for the world cup the next football <laughs> world cup then. <laughs> Uh, they, they might have
0: been... Uh, Gianni Infantini <laughs> um, probably, yeah, probably had a few hugs and rolled around on the floor a bit that night as well.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think he looks like Mitchell when he's at the top of his mark, so to speak, when he's ready to take off. I can see some Mitch out there. I love the footage of them watching Brandon as well. It's, you know... I, I can't imagine how emotional I would be if my brother were competing at the Olympics, you know what I mean? It must Mm -hmm. be a pretty special thing and to be there with his teammates. I loved how Mitch was sort of flicking the sharon around in his hands nervously. It's quite relatable, (laughs) isn't it, for those of us who love footy as well, whether it's a football or a cricket ball, passing it from hand to hand. Uh, But yeah, he had had a chance to win gold. I mean, he he did jump at, at 239, his last attempt. Had he pulled that off at... Would have rendered void the 237 jumped by the the dual gold medalist. And I saw, by the way, some some very Mm -hmm. grumpy people about that too. It seemed to make a certain segment of the uh, of the sports watching community very very grumpy and it seemed to principally be old white men they really didn't yeah. like the idea of, of two competitors seeing or being offered the chance to, to split the gold and or share the gold rather and doing just that it seemed to offend people of a certain generation anyway
0: but i think there were many of them though like i think that i think more attention was paid to them than they deserved i think most people saw it and thought that's awesome um and yeah it was because, you know, they'd done all their jumps. They were completely unsplittable on every measure. And so if you then start trying to make them jump over lower heights, that's antithetical to the point <laughs> of the Olympics, which is higher, faster, stronger.
3: Yeah, the, uh, this was put to me on the, on the Guardian panel that we were talking about last week on the show, which I, I did last night, and um, comparing it to the 2019 World Cup final at Lourdes where they were even mm. an extra time, at the end of extra time. And I think my viewer softened a bit on this. I used to say, no, 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 you know, it, obviously the, the boundary countback was a joke, but having a winner on the day was important. Well, spending a fair bit of time with Jeremy Coney in the last couple of months, he's convinced me otherwise, that if you have a game of cricket that's tied and then the tiebreaker is tied, that's enough. You give, you give out mm. two trophies. And I acknowledge that's coming from a, from a Kiwi perspective, but yes, uh, I think there are a number of ways of looking at this. I like that, um, you know, with the high jump, Dick Fosbury changed the whole event in 1968, uh, Mexico City. You know, changing the way that one would jump mm-hmm. over the bar, going backwards with the with the Fosbury flop. And he said it was okay. And he's the godfather of high jumps. So, if it works for him, it should work for everybody else. It should be case closed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. If the Dick flop is in, we're in. <laughs> if the Dick flop is out, you're in trouble.
3: In terms of that Bangladesh
0: series that you mentioned off the top there,
3: Jeff. So yeah, no, no broadcast into Australia now, for the first time since 1994 for any. Australian men's international match there was a bit of a rumour doing the rounds that it was going to be on YouTube but I made a couple of phone calls to the Bangladesh cricket board this morning just you know a couple of polite inquiries couldn't hurt. couldn't hurt couldn't <laughs> hurt
0: just over like, your flakes. well yeah, it, it, it <laughs> was quite kind
3: of, yeah, I've had a pretty busy day but I did find time to just put in a polite yeah. inquiry and um, they were most strident that no there has not been any rights bought. There's not been any rights sold. We're not going to bung it on YouTube with some third-party provider into Australia. That's not how it works. There's no value then. I'm like, yeah, okay, that, that's that, that's kind of fair enough. So, yeah, the first international matches that Australia have played for, yeah, what is it, 27 years, that Pakistan Test Series of, of 1994 was the last time that we had a blackout, so to speak, uh, to our part of the world when the men's team were playing. I saw Aaron Finch tweeting about it saying, hang on a second, wasn't this meant to be on on YouTube because I think uh, CA's website said that it was going to be on YouTube and look maybe they'll find an an accommodation and put it on YouTube before the second T20 which starts in a couple of days that they might sort it out after all the attention overnight and it's going to be a big story it's going to be a big story but yeah evidently according to reports from Dan Bredig Fox Sports didn't want it and that was that.
0: Well I I think if you're trying to sell five T20s in seven days during the middle of the Olympics good luck to you it's yeah, there's there's um there's a bit too much on to be thinking about it perhaps
3: <laughs> before we move on to our interview and the bits in between beforehand discord's cool lots of people are talking to us every mm. day on discord i know when we talked about doing this we had a couple of reservations around the idea that maybe no one will come maybe we'll be mm-hmm. hosting a party that nobody attends and we'll yeah. be rather sad and sorry on the contrary we've got well, well over 100 people subscribe to it now, many of whom are on there day in, day out, not really talking to us either, which I think is the best part of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're involved in the chat, but it's it's, an egal- it's a flat structure. It's egalitarian. We're not a more important contributor just because we host the podcast. Everyone's getting involved and starting separate threads and organising. I think there's going to be a beer had uh, this week at the Nottingham Test Match for those who are going, mm-hmm. which is brilliant. Uh, so if you are one of our patrons, it, it's straightforward. You can uh, link up the, your patron account to Discord and, and continue the conversation that we're having here on the channel throughout the week.
0: There's Yeah, there's a whole channel for meetups where, you know, if you're somewhere, you're at a cricket game, you're not at a cricket game, I don't know. Um, you, can, you can talk to other people who like this particular show and, as Michael Clarke famously said, the great game of cricket. Uh, speaking of the patron, should we do the thing? Let's do the thing. All right, I'm going to do this quietly because it's late at night and I um, don't want to annoy anybody. So let's have a little bit of nerd pledge. Nerd pledge. Nerd pledge. It's the game of nerds and pledges. The reverse quiz, the one we play with people on the Patreon page, this is how it works. Uh, We need to fund the show. People help us fund the show by sending us amounts of currency, but not normal amounts, not round numbers, very specific numbers, numbers that relate to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what that number means the number comes in from glenn finkelder now this is this is one that should have maybe been on the show a few weeks ago but i it has slipped through the cracks anyway i've found it i've retrieved it glenn and here it is three dollars and two cents 302
3: well uh i'm gonna leave it for you to answer jeff but i'll just note on the way through that glenn has been one of our most active participants uh, on the discord channel since we got him in there a couple of days ago he didn't uh quite get the link the first time around but he, he's there now. I mentioned when he first joined our little final word, uh, I suppose Twitter conversation last year that I remember his name coming up routinely for North on Cricket Club mm-hmm. as a kid when he was uh, playing in the ones over there and of course he, he brought to our attention Kieran Carlson uh, who played at Hampstead, not not Hampstead, Hampton uh, Cricket Club uh, with him Hampshire. in Melbourne. Not Hampshire, Hampstead Glamorgan, no, definitely, Gloucestershire
0: Wait. Definitely Hampson
3: in the VTCA <laughs> And Kieran Carlson's making truckloads of runs now for Glamorgan And who knows, maybe one day he'll mm. be uh, an international cricketer But yes, that's the backstory on Glenn Who knows a lot about the history of the game And thus, I- I'm sure that his 302 is something, uh, is something worth telling
0: well, I, I, my favourite bit with Glenn was when he suggested to our videographer Cameron Fink uh, that that Glenn was an older version of him because he was Fink Elder. Um, very good, very good, Glenn. <laughs> so, so Glenn said he said this was something silly, something in passing. So, I'm going to guess that it's not Brendan McCullum because when I see 302, I think the 302 that Brendan McCullum made, one of the only good triple hundreds, as, as we've discussed. Never talked about it in full detail, but we'll do that on the show at some point. But I don't think that's silly enough, and I think maybe Glenn was trying to set us up with something that we would like to talk about or something we talk about a lot. Mm. And mm. something we talk about a lot is Wilfred Rhodes. You know, the better of the Rhodes, the one the statue should be of, um, the, the slow left armour from Yorkshire who played between... 1898 and 1930 just didn't know when to stop yeah sure you know he bowled he's known for 127 test wickets he's known for taking 4,204 wickets in first class cricket which is still funny no matter how many times you read it you know sure he played over a thousand first class games but we also know he could bat a bit we also know that he he racked up just the 39,969 nice runs in his first-class career, uh, 58 hundreds along the way in first-class cricket, two test hundreds. And in test cricket, I couldn't help but notice that his his average across his test career, across the 30 years that he played test cricket, was 30.19, which if you rounded that up as required, it would be 302, the number sent to us by Glenn Finkelder. And so consistent was he, Wilfred Rhodes, that in first-class cricket it was almost the same, 30.81 in first-class cricket across the years. That's what I thought it might be.
3: Yeah, it works for me. Started as an opening bat and, and finished as a as a prolific spinner. I, I wonder, on Nerd Pledge, or on Storytime rather, um, last weekend we went through a tale of a player who finished... Uh, uh, it was... Who was it? It was Ginger uh, Lee. Ginger Lee. Ginger Lee, who finished just over 20,000 first-class runs and it was corrected by about 100 more after he retired. Surely, mm. surely there's a game of cricket that... Uh, that Wilfred Rhodes played in where mm. they could make it retrospectively first class status as was the as has often been the custom mm. and add 31 runs to his tally to go past mm. the 40,000 barrier I might ask Andrew Sampson about that is there a game that Rhodes played which is a bit questionable you know it, it, mm. it could be given first class status if you kind of squint and kind of close one eye you can kind of make a case for it mm. maybe that is a mission that we should take upon ourselves because yeah. there are two things that I feel unsatisfied with around Rhodes's career one is that and the other is that he played against Bradman uh, in 1930 for Yorkshire when they were on tour, but he'd finished up as a Test player in the Caribbean in April of that year. Imagine, as I said before, imagine he had of played with WG Grace in his final Test match in 1899 at Trent Bridge where they're um where they're playing tomorrow. So imagine he started there, which was his debut. It was also Trump's debut, of course, and he finished Mm -hmm. uh, with Bradman on that famous tour of of 1930. Better still, had he rocked up in Australia in in 28-29, Chapman's team, he would have had the chance to have played with Bradman as well, but by that stage he was kind of well finished as an international Mm -hmm. cricketer. The previous test he played was out here, actually, in the the deciding test of 1926 when they'd had four draws in a row. That was back in the days of um, three-day test cricket, and they thought they'd... Finished it off at the Oval in a timeless test match and Rhodes took wickets in in both innings. And there's great old um, Pathé footage of uh, the pitch invasion when Mm -hmm. uh, Rhodes bowls out Australia on, I think it was the fourth day, if I recall correctly, to win the Ashes 1-0. But yes, had he just somehow been shoehorned into the team uh, in 1930, I'd feel that was complete. Likewise, the the 31 runs, he's short of 40,000 in first-class cricket.
0: Well, Glenn, it may not be Wilfred Rhodes, in which case he can... Send us a DM, uh, nudge just towards the answer. We'll come back to it on Story Time, which is when we do a whole lot more of this stuff, the historical stuff, the wandering through the archives. But, Glenn, because your number was on the weekly show, you get to give someone a case of beer from Brick Lane who sponsor the show. Uh, they will send you the means to either collect yourself or give to someone else 24 cartridges of their finest. And we're talking... We're talking about the Sunday Sour today, Adam. Let, let me tell you something, Adam. Did you know it's perfectly suited to lounging through warm, long afternoons where everyone is invited? Great in the summertime. Perfect for refreshment. A playful take on an easy drinking beer. But can I tell you something off the record, Adam? Something that wasn't provided to me by Brick Lane. They say it's a summertime beer. Don't believe everything you read. They sent me some. I drank it. It's winter. And it was great. I had a great time didn't affect my enjoyment at all. It was a blood orange flavour. It was deeply refreshing. Uh, it, it seemed to work with the crispness of the air. So I think it could be year-round the Sunday sour
3: whenever i uh, hear that i think of the strokes song someday which was i think it might have been the first single off is this it which was released 20 years ago this week which makes me suddenly yeah. feel very old maya says i'm lacking in depth oh i will do my best as the chorus starts yes anyway 20 years uh, since the strokes and someday hopefully uh, brick lane well. brewing community uh, lasts for 20 years or more i'm sure it will uh, they're doing great things you can say day to them at the Dandy Tap House on on Thursdays and Fridays or at the Queen Victoria Market Tap House on Thursday through to Sunday and Wednesday nights as well during Queen Victoria Market Night Markets. They're a wonderful night. Have you been to those in the past, Jeff, the night markets at Queen Vic? I haven't. Yeah, I, I've been a few times. In fact, I went a couple of years ago with our colleagues Dan Bredigan and Dan Cherney and had a lovely night there. So you can you can find the Brick Lane team out there. Of course, they're all online at bricklanebrewing.com. And we were talking a couple of weeks ago about their environmentally friendly efforts uh, that they make in their, at the factory at Dandong South. Well, um, they also have a deliberate focus on supporting Australian farmers and businesses. So 98% of all of their finished goods are mass sourced by Victorian producers, including malt, water, most hops, most fibre, and all primary packaging. So as I've said before, they're good people doing good things at bricklamebrewing.com. You can follow them all their follow their social media uh, channels that's all listed in our show notes and yes we're proud to be associated with them on the show and I'm looking forward to finding out where Glenn uh, sends his slab of the, the someday Sour uh, whether he enjoys it himself or, or on sense he can let us know on Discord as you can uh, about your Nerd Pledge numbers we've been doing some sort of uh, group think on there in, in the last couple of days trying to solve a couple of tough ones for this weekend's show so um, yes be part of what we're doing uh, on Patreon uh, with Brick Lane and on Discord as well
0: Time to think about cricket bats for a minute, and then we will be talking to Felix White.
3: Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Woodstock Cricket, Jeff, they make great bats. And they do not lie. We got a message in from Matthew Cher today on Twitter right. who, who's been in touch with uh, Jono and the team there at Woodstock. Also in knots a bit of a Knott's flavour on the show uh-huh. today. It's his son's birthday tomorrow so a big thank you to Woodstock Cricket for their assistance and input with the presence. I'm genuinely Ooh. envious of his haul and we'll be testing it thoroughly beforehand. Now I should note for the record the haul also included the book that Nathan Lehman and Ben Jones have written Hitting Against the Spin. We'll have them on the show soon to talk about their great work but... There is wow. a Woodstock bat and a Woodstock bag And they look just delightful The uh, uh, the bat especially I can't quite tell which one of these from behind Because of the, mm-hmm. the way the stickers sit But yes, they're all on, on the website of course Woodstockcricket.co.uk Nice big thick edges Beautiful big swooping
0: W um, mm-hmm. The leather bag as well That's a superb birthday present for his kid it sounds like the festival, if it's got the thick edges, the the T20 bat, the one made for putting it over the fence, no <laughs> fuss about it. Great to get internet correspondence as well from someone named Matthew Share um, along with, you know, his friends Matthew Like and Matthew Subscribe. <laughs> um, it, it's it's real, really, really good dad areas to pick up Woodstocks up. And, and the thing is that listening to the show means that, you get 20% off because there's a final word, code TFW20. You put it in, you get 20% off. So Matthew is, uh, is shopping not only well, but he's shopping smart. Yeah, because at, at Woodstock, they take care of you. They find out what sort of bat you need. They don't just sell you one off the rack. They do a full consultation. They talk to you about your game, what you want, what you want to try to do, measure you up physically and do everything to make sure that you get the right cue in your hands. And if, you, if you're listening to this and you're not in the UK and you can't
3: actually go up to um, have the full experience in the showroom, they'll, they'll do it with you online. So that with Zoom, they'll, they'll go through with you talking about your cricket Zoom, uh, and make sure that you're buying the right bat. Yeah, They're very much hands on uh, And they want to make sure that you walk away uh, With a bat that's going to make you plenty of runs And of course as we've noted in the past uh, They went 1-2, they had a Quinella They had the gold and the silver uh, In the good gear guide this year The bat mm-hmm. testing that's done uh, each year here in the UK So woodstockcricket.co.uk TFW20 Is the offer code Get yourself 20% off One of the best cricket bats in the world
0: Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
3: It's the Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, I'm sat here at the Oval with a returning guest and friend of the show, Felix White. Felix. Welcome. Good afternoon. Appropriate that we're here at the Oval uh, on the basis that this ground is very much the focal point of the extraordinary memoir you've written. Uh, It's always summer somewhere. The last time we spoke was going on two years ago when you wrote the score to the documentary The Edge. Uh, A lot has happened since then, needless to say, but it feels like a triumph that you're able to celebrate this book over the next
1: couple of weeks. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's so nice to be back. I don't, can't imagine you have too many returning guests, do you? I don't
3: In think so. I mean, years. occasionally to talk oh. about cricket, but not necessarily to, to talk about their, yeah, yeah, their yeah. other work, you know.
1: Yeah, and you're right. A lot has happened since, um, since The Edge. I definitely was not imagining I was going to be writing a cricket-based memoir <laughs> when I was speaking to you two years ago about the music from The Edge, <laughs> that's for sure.
3: I mentioned The Oval. Because this is your home ground. I mean, this 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 is the ground that means so much to you. It has done since you were a little boy uh, growing up in this part of London. And you set about telling what is effectively a quite a complicated story because it's three or four stories woven into one. In turn, it's, it's quite a long, hefty book. To begin, what gave you... Uh, the motivation to write what is quite a raw and revealing book like these things don't come naturally to people to kind of expose themselves in this way
1: yeah I definitely, I'd I'd never thought I was going to write a book like this, I hadn't imagined it like I said even a couple of years ago Um, the the way it begun actually was i have been doing tail enders with Jimmy and Greg for a while and I ghost wrote Jimmy's book and the publisher um, spoke to me and said you know just sort of vaguely like would you like to write your own cricket book. And so we had this one meeting where we came up with the idea or I thought just off the top of my head literally maybe I could do a sort of cricket book but it's a bit like high fidelity but it's not it's not records it's informing this person as in my life it's cricket and it could be an interactive version of it. So like at every formative point of my life, um, I'm sort of marking it with a, talking about a player or a cricket moment that I projected a feeling onto. And then I'd go and meet said hero and their recollections would sort of change the story. But as, I'd, um, as I got in, I think I knew in that meeting that it was going to be more than that. And I think I knew on some level that it was eventually going to be about basically about my mum's death because i've had started doing that unpacking personally about why am i obsessed with cricket and why do i feel so much through it but have numbed out from other situations in my real life so i sort of knew that was going to be the case but once i sort of get got into telling the story i sort of realized there was no going back and for it to be authentic it all had to be there so and i was i was reading quite a lot of um music memoirs. I like, really like Carrie Brownstein's book and Pete Perfides and Viv Albertine's. And I, I was really struck by the fact that when I was really engaged with it and felt affinity and connection with it, I had the sense that they were telling me something that they might not have even told the closest member of their family, um, you know, or their closest friends. And so I felt like, ugh, I've got to go, I've got to do that. I've just got to go there. And that's what I ended up doing, really.
3: Is there a tipping point in that, in that sort of process that you're going through, as a person sort of thinking that, right, this is the right time for me. You know, mid-30s, had this successful career as a musician, making your way through in this, I guess, his second career in cricket, when you're like, no, no, this is the moment when I'm going to let it all out there and tell this very raw
1: story. No, I don't think there was a moment where I thought like, oh, this is my time to tell my story or anything like that. I just felt like maybe in terms of being the age that I am, I've, I've had enough distance from my mum's death and a series of losses and things I've experienced, past to have space from it, to realise maybe that's what it's about. I just don't think I would have got to that moment any earlier in my life, and I, pe- I think people tend to, especially people that have gone through young grief, they tend to come to this conclusion at this sort of point of their life, really, you know. And I th- and I think that was the, the that was the thing that swung it really is the thing that I'd initially imagined to be comedic and flippant the fact that I was growing up watching the England team in the 90s lose a lot I thought you know that is funny on some level but then the the thing behind the surface of that really was that why was that so appealing to me and why did I feel such an affinity with it so it was just it was sort of a really interesting exploration I think to me to feel like I was watching these men constantly process their own small losses and the fact that I could feel through them must have been in some way helpful or it must have explained what was happening in my life beyond my conscience, if that makes any sense.
0: Felix, it's a book, like as a reader, there's a surprise factor that, that really works, which is that you know when I picked it up, I read the title, you know, it's always summer somewhere, and I think, okay, this is going to be a sort of twee book about how jolly it is to follow cricket, and 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 <laughs> here's a story about a, an amusing anecdote that happened at a cricket match, and did you know that in some places they play cricket on ice, and uh, well, certain suburbs of Melbourne perhaps as well, <laughs> but uh, it's
1: yeah, you,
0: then. It's not like you go, okay, bang, here's a bunch of emotionally weighty stuff right away. You introduce it quite subtly that there's you as a kid, there's you learning to play cricket, and it's just sort of woven into the story that here's the day when my mother started realising there was something not right, uh, and this is when she gets diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And it's just introduced as kind of part of life almost for you at the time, that this is this is just a thing that has happened. It's not It's not something that can be... Changed or or rubbed away, but it also hasn't changed the world in an instant at that point, Uh, and it's something that whose influence grows over time. So I thought it was really delicately handled in that sort of way. That it's it's not like you're trying to push to write one kind of book or the other. These stories that happened alongside each other, that's how they grew, and and that's how you tell them.
1: Thanks, Jeff. That's. I've, yeah, that's really nice to hear that, and I think, I think partly that's because, that's what life is like. <laughs> Everything's sort of you, you, I don't know if people will, will like understand this for love cricket and music or whatever, but you do as you're growing up. You do filter the same feelings into different stuff, and it's all sort of happening at the same time, and it's sort of all in one in your imagination. It's all one thing, so when i got towards the end of that i felt like oh yeah conscious what you just said i felt like consciously oh that's what's cool about this but to begin with i was just i was just writing it i really didn't didn't really set out to like lightly plot out you know loss or whatever i was just literally was just writing um how it felt and and then always underneath the surface what must have actually been going on there with hindsight
3: yeah and i suppose that the cricketers that you you talk to it's a bit of a who's who of uh, you know the history of the game in the last 30 or 40 years, really, when you think about it. But then there's some unusual characters that you use to to find. Uh, meaning in acute points of your life. Take Alan Wells for example, who who plays that one Test match, and you can kind of see the grief in his eyes, walking off almost yeah. apologetically uh, from his first Test innings. And you can identify having absorbed that whilst being at your grandparents' place, such a big part of your family routine, going out there before your mum gets sick. Yeah. And, you know, and sort of finding a, a likeness with him through his brief Test career.
1: I really, I love speaking to Alan Wells, and that was. Um I think that was really important for the book that it wasn't just the like roll call of the uh, like most famous cricketers you know that mm. are also in broadcasting and we know all their stories, mm. and that's just a, that's a true story with Alan Wells because it is about failure and it's about humiliation and how we deal with those things as well. Yeah, but with with Alan Wells, that's just a true story. But I can remember that frame by frame that mm. happening and that feeling in his only Test match walking to the crease and it's quite similar to the Euros recently when Saka was walking up you just felt somehow in your bones, he's going to miss you just knew and yeah. that makes me like shiver thinking about it but it was like when Alan Wells walked out to bat in his only test match when he was sort of beyond the age you'd normally have a debut it just felt like everyone including him, knew mm. what was about to happen and so In a very sort of small sense, it's quite traumatic as a child then to see that actually unfold. And then this grown man, because I was sat on my own in the living room, and I remember it happening in slow motion, and then him walking off and finding the camera and saying sorry into the lens of the (laughs) camera. And I was looking around on my own in the living room thinking, has anyone seen what, can you confirm and it really played into it that period in my life that idea that you were talking to, the television was talking to you and you could communicate with it in some way mm. and i think the fact that that happened at that point in my life really sparked like this idea that i wanted to get inside the television like so like into like watching oasis videos or like into the cricket i wanted to get into that world, like communicate it somehow, communicate with it. And it did have this like watching that unfold had this I had this strange loaded with this sense of like, I need to tell alan Wells it's alright, he doesn't need to be sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which sounds really heavy, was it like a, whatever I was, like a ten-year-old kid or something. And in in some ways, um that's what the book is as well. Me phoning up Alan Wells to share that sense of catharsis and work out one did that really happen two what was that about and in my own way say you didn't need to apologize about Mm. that man you know (laughs) i know that sounds so heavy but that's kind of like i felt like that was what part of the process of the book was really
0: but it's something that makes a lot of sense when you look back at it that you're a kid you know, you're very young, you're under 10, you're getting older, your mum's getting sicker and you don't know how to process that, all of those feelings. But when you start watching cricketers go through humiliation and torment and you start seeing things like wrestling shows where the good guys don't win and things like that, that's a way for you to experience pain or grief or sadness without it mattering so much perhaps. Or it, it's like you can... Project what you're actually feeling onto these characters outside and kind of let them hold it for you rather than admitting what you're actually feeling, which you probably have no ability to process yourself at that age.
1: Jeff, like 100%, that's what it is. And, um, yeah, you brought up the wrestling example. That's interesting because that's at a similar time in my life, and loads of, I think probably loads of men my age will understand that infatuation with wrestling at the time and how it clearly designated for you who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, when you should be sad, when you should be celebrating. And then it sort of, in my head, I was sort of permeated that into Ashes Cricket, where Australia are clearly the bad guys, we're clearly the good guys. So they kind of mushed in that sense. And the, At that time, the interesting thing was I got to write about in a book I I bought WrestleMania 7 from Blockbuster and in it, the Hart Foundation with Bret Hart, they lose to the nasty boys and it's it's an injustice. They don't deserve to win. The referee's back's turned and I remember the feeling of like Jesus Christ man, that stung me and I remember looking around the room and going, going like can no one fix this? Can we not fix this? But then when we went to give the video back the next day I needed to get WrestleMania 7 again I needed to see that <laughs> happen again and in the same way that was happening in Ashes Cricket suddenly the Australian team sort of in my head started to become the Nasty Boys who had won the tag title like chewing gum with like the residue of chewing gum on the sides of their mouths and like it just felt like they were the Nasty Boys and so when you'd be watching the Ashes in the 90s and we would be, be beaten again and again and again somehow it sort of mushed the injustice of it mushed in my head with that wrestling thing of like this is just a cruel injustice that I couldn't stop watching and like you say Jeff I think with a lot of hindsight it's interesting that but my mum was dying slowly and I was finding a way to understand what that feeling was I guess. There's shade and light
3: throughout that, that that early phase of your life i mean there's this beautiful passage about how you you find bowling left arm orthodox spin out here watching toughers bowl and you know an influential teacher that likes the the lovely loopy stuff that goes on to kind of define your your existence as a player but then you referred to being inside the television before and wanting to be inside the television doing performances from your parents after watching top of the pops you know like with your brothers and feeling as though you were going to be a performer i mean you're not naturally an extrovert really are you I mean you you can I mean maybe I'm experiencing this from watching you in groups of people you know sort of friendship and so on but you can sort of be shy as well and, and reserved but yet you wanted to be a performer you obviously wanted to be inside that television even if you didn't know it when you were a kid that there might have been some pattern or some yeah some, some trend you were already on
1: yeah I think maybe that yeah there's an escapist aspect I think whether 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 you're going through any form of loss or not at that age i think that's just appealing isn't it like being in a pop group or whatever but i think but yeah it is like getting inside the tv so that thing of watching top of the pops and then two days later i'm coolio my brother's lv and we're doing gangster's paradise type (laughs) thing was just a natural thing to do the same way i felt like oh i feel for alan wells (laughs) that sounds really crazy when i'm saying it out loud but um (laughs) No, uh, so it, it has this, yeah, but in a way, that's, that's, the,
3: that's the magic of the book, isn't it? Because it stitches these threads together sort of chapter to chapter. And a lot of it does the focal point of much of this early on is your living room, yeah. you know, or walking down the street buying, buying, you know, cassettes or, or CDs. Yeah. And I come back to your grandparents as well. I mean, the idea of sort of fishing around the, the back of their freezer for an ice cream or whatever it was, or, yeah, or yeah. the same people you'd pass, that ritual you'd go through listening yeah. to the same Beatles album on route out there on a Sunday afternoon yeah. sitting in the same place in the living room bowling in the backyard exactly. it's very relatable
1: isn't it yeah I think I guess so I think I don't know if like I don't know Matt. the thing I'm really interested about having written this book is the amount whether there will be a lot of people or very few people that understand some of the because some of the things I've said in it I don't I've never really said out loud especially that thing of um secretly hoping England will lose mm. as I grow up mm. That's something that I've never shared because I've always felt a bit weird about that or ashamed about that or read, like that. the fact that I was going to watch Fulham as well play football. like I always had this feeling like I want Fulham to concede here. <laughs> and even though I wouldn't say it out loud because that's the familiar feeling and that's where I get the currency from the sport, obviously, was like that's what the buzz was, like just the sort of sharing of hurt. Mm. And I don't know... I genuinely haven't when you say it's relatable I've got no idea if loads of people feel like this secretly or no one at all does or anything like that. I just felt like once I'd got into the telling of this story like once I decided like I've just got i I've got to tell it absolutely all because mm. you only write a book like this once in your life really just you know I just decided to share that
3: yeah and, and like that then it, it's the idea that it is a long book I mean you could have. You could have written a shorter book, and it still would have been, you know, the, the right length uh, for the story you were telling. I'm sure, but there is all that detail about your childhood, which I, I suppose a lot of people might skip over. Yeah. But it's central to informing the relationship you have with Lana and Andrew, as you refer to them uh, in the text. Yeah. As opposed to Mum and Dad, which again I thought that was an interesting part of this too—that you use first names throughout rather than Mum, Dad, yeah. Granddad, Grandma, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that there's this there's this sense that. You needed to have all of it there to make the story sing properly. And I, I like that. I, I mean, I, I think that had you had you left details
1: out, it wouldn't have felt like we were as perhaps quite as invested as we were, really. Yeah, I just literally read... Um, when I would started it, I was reading Pete Perfidi's book, Broken Greek, which is yeah. probably like twice as long as my book and about 10 years of his life growing up and just being obsessed with music as um, living in a chip shop in Birmingham. And I was really like... I was just really into in the book that all those tiny little insignificant insignificant things that were given so much space to breathe in the book really, like, added up and and help you feel like part of his life. So I was just sort of trying to... I just felt like that was where the relatableness, as you say, probably was in doing that, really, even though a lot of it is pretty... They're not huge moments all the time. They're pretty small little changes in your life. It's interesting what you're
0: talking about just before with wanting teams to lose or, or that like it's it's that ability to be close to some sort of sadness or grief that's kind of safe because it doesn't it doesn't mm. really matter it matters enough to make you feel bad but it doesn't sort of deeply materially matter and then there's you know there are yeah. the bits where it's like hitting a nerve where there is the grief that really matters like uh, I think, I think it's probably a couple of generations of writers who've made a living out of having watched England lose in the 90s a lot and how they were a bit shit and a bit <laughs> funny and it, it gets talked yeah. about all the time. And there, and yeah. there's, you know, th- there are all of the things that go wrong and so on. And then there's like this profound shock of uh, uh, when you speak to Adam Holyoke about his brother Ben dying and that, that suddenly being this really genuine grief in English cricket and it's like all of the, the stuff that seemed to matter beforehand is irrelevant this is the real thing and you get quite deep into that story and how shocking that was for those players at the time
1: yeah absolutely the um yeah you're you're right about that and I think that was that was a really interesting one speaking to Adam because with Adam I I used to go and truant from school here when to watch county cricket like, i leave school with my school uniform, stuff it straight in my bag, and then just spend all day watching county cricket here. And Ben was in that, and Adam were in that Surrey team. And I had a couple of really, like, tiny moments with Ben where I just shouted at him, and he waved back. And it's kind of hard to explain how much things like that mean. I see it with Jimmy all the time, actually, now, where he just lends a tiny little gesture to a kid, and you just realise how much... That actually does mean to um, someone, or maybe I maybe I know that because I've been that person that Jimmy's. But anyway, so for the purposes of the book, anyway, when when my mum died, the truth is it had been happening for a long time, and I felt all, I felt so numb to it. I was almost in. A, I, I was almost it was I was almost buzzing. It was a really strange feeling where I felt like. Um, I didn't feel sad at all I was kind of like There was an element of enjoyment to it For a couple of weeks Where it's just so surreal And you're getting quite a lot of attention Yeah, it was that was It was a hard thing to compute Like what my feelings were really And a couple of months later Maybe not even that A month later Ben died in a car crash And I remember like Just All the feelings that must have been but I didn't put the time for about my mum I felt it all about Ben and how cruel life can be and for Adam and all that kind of thing and how sad it was so it's interesting I think with distance that when you're given distance you can feel something for other people that you're not capable of feeling for yourself basically but in the book I was interested for all the obvious reasons to talk to Adam about it partly because I'd felt at the time like I felt guilty about my grief because my mum had been much older than Ben, and his life had been cut short without any warning whatsoever in a car crash. So it kind of loaded me with a guilt, and I um, so I, and I said that to Adam. I wasn't planning to because I felt like it was too intense, but I said it to him, and amazingly, like I was brutally honest of him, he was like, "That's my response to you too, man." <laughs> my brother died like that and your parents are supposed to die before you and i had a i had a moment of like oh (laughs) that wasn't what i was intending that this part of the book to be about or what the conversation was but then i ended up feeling like that's a really that yeah but it was it was it was a gift in part of on from him that he was telling i was asking for the truth and he gave me the truth and to be just to be able to have those conversations is quite a big thing, I think.
0: It's the honesty that you said that you couldn't produce before, like being able to tell people what you really think, like the 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 unpopular sort of feeling that you shouldn't be having, but you are having.
1: Exactly, yeah. And it's that thing of aligning what's inside with actually what's outside. And I guess when when my mum first died, like, that's actually that frees into exactly what I'm saying about the outside of me saying. I want England to win but inside I'm going please lose so I can feel good and then the outside of like being like performing some sort of sadness when my mum died but actually sort of inside feeling weirdly sort of alive by it it's really confusing to live with that constantly so yeah I guess that's exactly as you say that's what the process of the book is is like to align those two things eventually and just say it and like what a relief that is and then you realize the world doesn't end when you just say what you feel you know it takes a long time to get to that point I think
3: yeah I think it takes quite a bit to to acknowledge that that at the time you were getting almost a buzz out of the
1: yeah that's not a terrible saying that
3: but I I think the fact that you're willing to say it and the fact that Ben Holyoke's death and you have this in the book had had more of an effect on you in the immediate aftermath because of the the points you've just outlined yeah and that he was able to bring it back for you again going back through this interview and I mean even there's a passage there a couple of times when you say that you were Always telling everybody, in in the outside parts of your life. No, no, I'm over it. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. Yeah, it's not. No, I'm fine. Totally, not a not a part of my life. And and you were able to keep that wall up for for a number of years, where yeah. um, it, it was as though, it, as though you needed that force field around you that you couldn't allow your, your mum's passing to define any part of of your life that was going well. Yeah,
1: that's that's absolutely true, man. I feel like yeah, there is. I, I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to write that because. It's complicated thing, grief. I think, and there is guilt involved in it, and all that kind of thing. So I felt like it, that was, if I was really talking about it, it was important to put all of that stuff in there. But yeah, I don't know. I felt yeah. I, I guess it like the, the reason that what I would like the metaphor you could kind of use with with my mum immediately dying is that like if you like burn your hand or something, but you burn it so bad, your body doesn't actually feel it initially mm. because of the shock of how bad it is. And it kind of a little bit like that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's almost so bad that you can't feel it at all. So that's probably must have been what was happening in my brain in, in some sense. Yeah.
0: And there's also almost uniformly there is guilt tied up with grief about any number of ways that it that it can come about that you're you're not feeling bad enough that you're feeling too bad you've been feeling too bad for too long or that other people have worse things to grieve about that your sort of example there that this person's death was worse than than the my the the death in my life because of the age or because of the circumstance or whatever it may be there's there's always um, I think almost everybody who grieves feels that they're doing it wrong in one way or another
1: totally that's, ex- that's completely true. And I think it was just, yeah, and, and I think it was it's just also like the Ben thing. It's just a really interesting example, I felt like, of how cricket feeds into your life without it just being like, I like a game of cricket. Mm. I'm watching, you know, how cricket works. I just think there's... Um, definitely, certainly for me, there were so many other things at play within the stories around cricket of all these people's lives that made it so... Vital to my existence as well, and as a sort of like set of rules. And to think that you're sort of around 17, 18 years of age at that point,
3: you know, quite an important juncture in any young person's life. And you're able to thread the needle on that in explaining the night that you go to watch Oasis play at Watford and it being a, a life affirming, perhaps one of the most pivotal moments really in your existence at that point point, that informs so much of what comes next with playing guitar with your brother each night about the band that eventually forms from that and we'll come to that in a moment but that's the day that your mum dies I mean you know it's these two parallel storylines and you know it's 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 a it's a in some ways a beautiful chapter but also a brutal one i mean it's a chastening as a reader you're kind of reading it thinking wow like this is how you've managed to combine the night at Watford with what you return home to the next day Mm -hmm. um it's it is as you say it's it's a reminder that life is ticking on despite the fact that these are these huge interventions that that will define who you are
1: yeah completely that was um yeah, I don't know. Like, even, even outside of myself, just in a narrative sense, when I was writing the book, I just thought, oh, that's really... It's the first time I could sort of feel how heartbreaking that was, but my life was opening up just as yeah. hers was ending.
3: Did you know before, by the way, that that was... I mean, had you ever thought about that expressly, that, gee, that night is that night? Like, had you put the two and two together until you kind of started going through No, process?
1: I did. Do you know what? I, I no, Actually, I, do you know what? I haven't even... I'm not even sure I've done... I sort of doing this thinking out loud now but I think that might be to do with the guilt a little bit as well because because I was obsessed with Oasis I was there having like still remember so much about that gig and how important it was to me second row meeting the eye line of you know the band but i'm climbing inside the TV basically <laughs> and then Liam nods at me and then yeah the next day I'm too ex- I'm too excited to sort of speak to my mum and then I stay the next day I, from I stayed at school to play cricket the next day. And then when I got back, I just missed her death.
3: Yeah.
1: And I think the book kind of goes into it, but just as I'm saying that now, I just feel like that kind of that probably did collude with that feeling of guilt actually that those two things that were so that were like um that I'd use as subliminally as like crutches to get through it had actually Got in the way of being there, basically, when I should have been, and it, t- it took a long time to. Uh, to st- I think I think actually just to forgive myself for that.
0: And then that lines up with like your excitement at, um, Liam Gallagher nodding at you is not that far away from your excitement at, you know, talking to Chris Lewis or, or something like you've got, you've got the cricket and the music stuff side by side. And and what you mentioned with Jimmy before, like the small gestures mean a lot. My version of that was a front row at a Hilltop Hoods gig when Suffer MC told me I was a sick cunt. And I was like, this is the greatest (laughs) moment of my life. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I would hear more yeah, of that. Put, 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 put that on my tombstone. Um, but it's <laughs> you've, got, you've got these two obsessions, right, and one's very cool and one's very not, but music becomes the other one, and it's very much the getting inside the TV thing that – you kind of know you want to be in a band before you know anything about how to play music or what you might play you sort of just stumble into it with your brother and and a couple of other friends but then in the middle of your teenage years there's suddenly this kind of world of exploration that you can start making sounds and they can start doing things and you really rush into it you know like you're booking gigs before you know how to play instruments just because (laughs) you want to be in there you want to be part of it whatever it is there's there's this surge of momentum and you just want to be like out in front of it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really true, yeah. And that's um yeah, I mean that was that was part of what was going I was from a younger yeah, I think I talk about it at the start of the book I think yeah but this sort of I was sort of in my head meshing the Beatles with slip cordons as well because I hadn't visually seen the (laughs) Beatles yet but they looked slip cordons looked like exactly what the Beatles were (laughs) and it was this idea that you can have a little gang that can be um, completely impenetrable if it just doesn't take anything seriously it's quite silly just feels like it sort of floats in its own little world and so yeah, it's not really cryptic that after my mum died, it became just a thing of like it doesn't matter what the band is or sounds like. I'm just getting in one, so I'm just I was really trying to search out people to do that with. And my brother is one of them, but I think also it was like kind of I don't know. I'm always really interested in the in the fact that John and Paul, John Lennon and Paul McCartney from Beatles, both lost their mum. When they were young, and they're sort of, whether they know it or not, they sort of meet each other and they just create this huge, mad world that sort of fills all of that gap and they sort of understand each other in that way. And I feel like there are certainly a lot of examples of people that do that. That you just, I definitely felt at the time like I need to be bringing stuff back, I need to be doing something now. So, yeah, my part in the beginning of the Maccabees was just like the making, getting the gigs going making this work let's get this together type sort of attitude which to be honest was a lot of fun I mean the music was terrible for years but it was a lot of fun getting that gang together
3: and not least the fact you're doing it you know alongside Hugo initially as well
1: right who who, who is I mean you you write beautifully about his grief
3: journey and what you can identify in his own experience of your mum passing away but nonetheless it's, it's you two and others but Especially you two uh, having that brotherly link, sort of taking on the world, trying to I don't know maybe deliver on a debt that you're here and your mum's not, and, and you have to do something big and yeah. meaningful now that you're you know you've well of course got that you, chance.
1: you never say, we never would ever have said that to each other of course you're just sort of doing it but you find other ways to express it that are just less exposed so we did have end up finding this it was just it just fell neatly in the in the slipstream of. Um, all those bands, like The Strokes and Interpol and all of that, and I was finding that my songwriting on an acoustic guitar like oasis Star songs was, was so bad, I couldn't even bring myself for me to hear it, like my songs. So, so, but, but those bands turned up where it was like they all relied on each other and inter-band dynamics and little parts moving in and out of each other. So it was just like light bulb moment. And so me and Hugo would be in the room just with little guitar lines that were quite simple, but just like if you just played them with enough like gusto and quick enough, they kind of like became their own thing. And that was like really, 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 really appealing. But that was how you could make a band work rather than here's the song and here's the singer and everyone else does the backdrop. That That felt like, oh, yeah, this is – I can see us being that. Let's go, hmm. you know.
0: It's interesting that the two worlds don't cross over. Like the rest of the band – They're not into cricket There's like The one moment Where (laughs) you get them To pay attention Which is the Edge Baston test In the 05 Ashes Which is One of the funniest Sequences in the book I won't spoil it For people But you know In the middle of your Very expensive studio Recording time You're trying to watch The last day of this Test (laughs) match While also getting An album done On the same day Uh, But yeah, It's not Like they're not In this with you This is your weird Your eccentricity As far as they're concerned Mm. And you're still Like You're You're trying to be in this super cool band in bristol but you're also sneaking off by yourself to sit with a bunch of strange old men in a piss smelling pub somewhere in like the dingy back room like sucking down a pint of warm lager like it's it's yeah it's a strange contrast
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah but it is. But I think so. many I don't know if you would. Would you? Can you relate to that with cricket, or is it? Was yeah, it I, I like that.
3: I, yeah, the bits about sitting around with old old men. Can you? And it is old men, isn't it? In a yeah. pub on your own. I mean, I, I can. Yeah, I can. I can feel myself doing that as a younger lad. Jeff,
1: would you have done that uh, in Australia? Was it slightly like different I, culture? I've definitely.
0: Well, I mean, we could actually watch it on our television, so that helped. But um, I. I, yeah. I mean, generally, I think it it's watched more broadly. So if the cricket was on somewhere, people would be watching it. It wasn't yeah, yeah, so yeah. much much like an only an over 60s county members kind of sport where where you're you're bringing the average age down individually you know by about 30 years
1: <laughs> yeah I got you i mean, i was um yeah i think that's that's interesting in itself really but it's like you know in england at that point it's like a sort of weird drug addiction like you sneak off without telling anyone into these dark corners of pubs and watch it with these like Four or five, like islands of men, somewhere, you know, and like sort of that was that's kind of um, interesting in itself, and I think that's probably a lot of people my age experience of of cricket. Actually, you know, we're we're all, we're all everyone in the game now is trying to seriously undo that, but um, there was yeah an element of solitude to it, definitely at that time, and yeah, you're right, they they both ran they they did run separately to each other, and that, at the time, I think what I felt was. I don't want to let too many people know about this cricket addiction. <laughs> yeah, because they might not think it's. It's not going to help.
0: You yeah, know? <laughs> like if you're the if you're the lead singer cool. of some like death metal band from yeah Scandinavia, you don't want people to know that you're volunteering at a soup kitchen or whatever. You know, you like, <laughs> keep like, this on the down low. Like,
1: you know, saying that you like cricket too loudly mm-hmm. might lead to too many people making too many assumptions. Yeah. You
3: know, yeah, they they would know you weren't really from Manchester, as you that, say. you yeah, kid, exactly. You wanted to have that
1: it was that kind of like, oh, I don't want people to know that. That, So, that was all happening in my head, definitely, yeah, at that time.
3: It's an interesting departure from the first stage of the book where it it turns into, in the second part of the book, almost being a a history of the Maccabees in in many respects, because obviously the Maccabees don't exist until about the halfway mark and then uh, that that period of your life is delved into in, in great depth. But I suppose you would have needed, if not permission, at least consulted uh, the other members of the band because that's that's raw too. I mean, we've, we've talked about one very raw part of your book and your personal story, but the rise and
1: fall of the Maccabees also meets that criteria. Do you know what? It's really um, interesting you said that because what I hadn't even conceived of when I was writing it was that I was gonna have to clear this book with everybody that's in it and yeah. like make sure that they didn't feel misrepresented and it was once I'd finished it, it was like really really important to me that no one felt like they were getting thrown under the bus and I really wanted to make it just about my own response to all the situations and not about anyone else's failings at all but I was I was really nervous about sending this to like the Maccabees or all kinds of people but when I did and this goes for everyone really I had a conversation with each of them and that this is like, it must be like 10-15 people, not including the cricketers who I projected my strange feelings onto but I had to clear with the writing <laughs> on but they had no idea what I was going to do um, but I had these amazing conversations with all the people in my life Yeah, right. And and after it you know, there's one or two things people would to changed and I didn't remember like this, which was all fine. And then, but after it, like I felt so good for a week and I've realised that's what the book was about. It was about like reaching, it was the opportunity to reach all those people that have made an impression on my life and basically just sort of tell them that I love them. And we're cool. We had amazing conversations where it wasn't like, well, let's meet up and get a coffee. There was no, like... had
3: you done a bit of that, like, post Maccabees, post-2017 farewell shows, I mean, I mean, obviously, Hugo is your brother, but, I mean, and you work with other members of the band in, in your in your business these days, but, I mean, is it the case that with some members of that cohort you wouldn't have had an awful lot to do with for four years?
1: I mean, there's been definitely been a distance with some of them and not out of... Um not willing to, I think it's probably been necessary just to distance our lives and get on with different yep. things. And it was probably too soon for a long period to even discuss it, mm. really. Um, so, the same way that I'm probably the right age to be looking back on mum's death, but it was probably the right time to be unpacking what happened with that band as well.
3: There's a correlation there between the, the Maccabees extraordinary rise, really, when you consider from album to album the way that it escalates and, and that that England team, you know, where the where the England cricket team were, say, in 2007 and 2009 and where they are by the time that, um, you know, the number one team in the world, when, when you're really having that sustained period of success, the album in 2012 which goes nuts as well. I remember being over here in 2012 when that came out and it being kind of like such a big deal, right? Yeah, That's yeah. when that team is, you know, they've won in Australia for example, you know, the Andrew Strauss team that, that you were part of the, the documentary The Edge that that went through that we we talked about that earlier, yeah. but and then equally it's the other way as well, isn't it? 2014, 15. I mean they get they get pounded in Australia in an Ashes series. They get bundled out of a World Cup, which you fly over to watch, and they've been eliminated before you can even get there. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's kind of your escape from the reality that yeah. the Maccabees yeah. is ending. I mean, there's this nice synergy between Maccabees world and and England cricket world, which you're so invested in both.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like as you as you were saying that I'd never thought of this, but as you were saying that I was sort of thinking like. you of know, those old novels where like he gives the sense of feeling or whatever of, of all the characters in it it's like it's kind of a bit like that where like cricket is informing my general feeling about my life at all times <laughs> and of course like there's an element of fudge in it you know because it's not always as perfect as that but there definitely was a sense in my 20s where the 90s were over anything was possible This England team were like flexing their muscles it did kind of correlate into how I felt about anything's possible in my life too or whatever, you know.
0: It's one thing I'm particularly interested to ask about. So there's that surge for about six years from 2009 to 2015. It's getting better and better. You're going on these, like, you're playing massive festivals, big crowds. You you have this interesting experience of, of dating Florence Welch from Florence and the Machine, who's a massive star. In her own right you're, The band is going really well But like self-deprecation is this massive thing with you And I suppose people look at it as, as an English trait But it's, it's probably much broader than that you're like, Your response to that relationship is It's weird dating someone way more famous than I am Even though you're in this band It's doing, <laughs> doing really well Your response to yourself as a musician Is still I feel like the whole way through the book You're still like I'm pretty shit and I'm just making it up as I go along, and somehow, when we get the band together, it works, but there is never a sense that you actually really get better. like you never really give a give a feeling that you've you've cracked it, you know how to make music now. Have you ever been able to embrace the idea that maybe you're pretty good at some things and and that maybe you don't have to undermine your own perception of yourself?
1: I think it's a really interesting question and I don't know if, if I do I don't, don't know if I can think of it that way I feel like I've, I feel like I really wanted to get across what I'd been what I'd felt like in other music memoirs or biographies with like rock stars or whatever sometimes what I felt like I'd been really sold short on was no one's ever said I wasn't sure if I could do it to be honest and I just didn't feel good enough And I really felt like I really want to make that clear that the base level thing when you go into anything, like when you're writing a song thing is that I've had, is that I'm not sure if I can do this really or this is right. And I've had to have other people prop me up and contribute in order to do that. And I just felt like that was... I think I just I just felt I don't know because obviously it's just me but I felt like there was just something telling about like the human condition in that really and I just wanted to be really clear that that was what the actual thought process has always been I think with I mean with Florence it's like she was way more famous than me like it wasn't like I don't think um you know that was a sort of manic time and she was doing you know arenas everywhere and all that kind of thing Headlining in glastonbury so i was i don't think it was particularly self-deprecating it was just like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I quite know.
3: like that you bringing her here is, is sort of part of your your relationship as well and, yeah yeah, you know, yeah and even though she has you know and you make this clear in the book no understanding of the game in in, in sort of minute to minute terms but she was quite happy sitting over there in the Peter May stand or whatever it was, you know, you, you know you're know, you quite you're quite content being there together. And yet at the same time, it would, it would be a point of friction in your volatile relationship that she would, I don't know if resent's too strong a word, but she would certainly feel strongly about how much you were giving to these silly men in, in, in white uniforms compared to what you might be able to give to other parts if you weren't focused on that.
1: Exactly. And that's exactly what I, was, what I thought was interesting. I, I didn't even, I didn't know I was going to put my relationships in it, but I thought, David... I, Felt, in the end, I felt like it was good to put that in, and my previous relationship, mm. because they spoke about what cricket was to me. I think I think with um, Laura Mary, my previous relationship, she really held a mirror up to how male it all was. Like she couldn't, eat, she couldn't even be in the presence of it. Because it was just full of these men who were sure that their opinions were more important than anybody else's. The ground's full of all men drinking. She couldn't even like have it on for a second. And um, she felt the same way about music and all my heroes that were bands. And I suddenly was like, whoa, they're all, they're all men. Mm. And I hadn't even, it sounds mad, but I hadn't even really considered that. You know, so that, I thought that was just sort of an in, the maleness of the world that she began to show me was interesting. And then with Florence, I think the inability to put the feeling that I had in the relationship, but rather put it in the game and then resent the game for it, I thought was just sort of fascinating with, with distance as well.
0: And that feels like the start of. You realizing how much you're using cricket as a refuge, but not necessarily in a nurturing way, just a, somewhere where you can go and park feeling about everything else and just switch everything else off and, and hide from the world. That's that's Florence's um, perception of how how you were. You know, she said, well, at least it kept you out of trouble because you were very quiet and, and sat nicely in the corner and didn't bother anyone. But, you know, there's very much a sense of just kind of blanking off from the rest of the world. Um, and And maybe, you know, maybe the book is kind of the – the logical extension of actually questioning that enough, like dragging it into the light, so that you have to acknowledge it. It has to be seen as a real thing. Like, has it has it helped? Has the process of writing it helped, or, or would it? Does it sort of need to wait until more people read it and, and you get feedback on it, or like was this was writing it part of actually coming to terms with this realization yourself? Uh,
1: it's, it's hard to tell, really, and I think the thing to make clear, really, is that I don't think that my relationship with cricket, it would be overboard say, like, it's been toxic or whatever, you know. I just feel like there are so many points in my life that I've used it to just sort of articulate how I felt about the world knowingly and unknowingly. And the thing that I'm interested about when people have read it, like I said, I'm interested to know... What things people share about it in in their own life, and whether it does, I, d- I just don't know. I actually don't know uh, who's going to make what from it. Really,
3: something that you and I talked about a few weeks ago, when I suppose you were just at the very final stages of it, was how how invested you are in explaining to people towards the second half of the book your need to be liked, your need to be walking into the room and not necessarily letting people know that you're a rock star, people kind of working it out themselves and all the way along being the happiest and nicest person in the room. Yeah. But the idea that you would have the self-awareness that you do that, I mean, that, that can't be an easy thing to put on paper, that you feel as though for a long period of your life that there were, there were fraudulent parts of your personal relationship.
1: Yeah. Oh, my... Yeah, I, mean, I cannot believe that I've written that. But when that got triggered, really... That realisation was um, the band had just broken up and went out to Australia for the Ashes, yeah, and yeah. we spent time together, didn't we? Yeah. With Jeff, obviously, and um, the <laughs> the 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 actuality of being presented with a stranger, them asking what you do, and not being able to say, "I'm in a band," and you know Maccabees and heard of them, and just say like, "Oh, I think I'm sort of, I think I'm a cricket writer. I think I'm a cricket writer," <laughs> and watch. People, the difference in response that people had to me, and then realized, whoa, like I've been, like, really been sort of like trading on that one for a while. Where you know you're going to get currency, so well, you, know you, know can, be,
3: right? you know what the response will be, you know what the response will be.
1: So you could be really like, um, like charming or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, but, it was but that was just interesting to me because the ways that we unknowingly manipulate or place ourselves in situations you know what i mean where our ego wants to put us and what we're trying to project to someone <laughs> i thought that was um i thought yeah. that was interesting but i can't but also yeah not to say that i i it's not to say that it's completely made up like of course you are interested in other people and you know you do want to be sociable and all that kind of thing but like there's also, you know yeah like that's just a real truth as well we're all like sort of (laughs)
0: Because you get to be benevolent in that situation. You know, you say I'm in a band and they say what band and and you say what it is and then you get to sort of have the benevolence of I'm going to be gracious and and give you my time as opposed to when you say I'm a cricket writer and then you can't get them to keep talking to you. Like they don't want any of your time at that point.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's so fascinating, like the desperation. But he'll tell you about your band as well. (laughs) That's really true. I think, yeah, I mean... Do that is, yeah. To be honest, I think like probably a lot of cricketers feel that definitely, do they? You know, when they retire and stuff, and you can't do the, you know, you're not that big thing in that that world anymore.
3: What well, was that piece you wrote? Wasn't it? That yeah, long, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Long they wisdom, had, yeah, yeah. Ten thousand words of wisdom you contributed a couple of years ago to the magazine. I think
1: maybe one or two crickets said certain, similar things to that. Yeah. yeah.
3: that that being that when when your identity is fundamentally shifted like that in your case not being a Maccabee in their case no longer being a professional cricketer or or an England player in in many cases it does pack a punch you you have to reevaluate where you sit
1: it does but also but like in hindsight like I can't even tell you how I'm so grateful for all that because and just the realisation that like life is going to kick you sometimes and you're going to be like feel terrible and all that kind of thing or feel like you failed but eventually it's just proof that you've lived, that you're living. It's not proof of anything other than that. And sometimes when you're in positions like that band, you've got to keep achieving and all that kind of thing. Your philosophy to your life really isn't that. It's not based on that. So, yeah. So when I look back on that, I feel like, wow, really cool. To, to have been able to ha- have that experience and had the Maccabees kept going and made, now that got bigger, um, I don't I don't actually know if that would have been that good for me now thinking yeah. back on it really.
0: Being in a band with your brother, I wonder whether that would spare you a little bit as well because you can't you can't fully believe the posturing you know, if you're in a band with your sibling because they know you're a fucking loser, you know. There's there, there's no <laughs> there's no pretending. Like, like they've seen you as a child. They've seen you uh, embarrass yourself and like, I don't know, I wondered about be, whether being in the band with your brother was uh, like a way of connecting where, you know, you've got this big shared grief but one of the things about a grief like that is that um, it gets really tedious after a while, like it's boring, you know. You've thought about it or you can think about it and you have it in common but you don't want to think about it Anymore, and 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 maybe you know, but sort of connecting to family is a bit fraught because that's dangerous because it can, you can get hurt, and maybe having the band being in the band together was a way of sort of having being affectionate with each other without having to actually act it out or say it because you were doing something together.
1: Definitely, definitely, definitely,
3: definitely. The book kind of comes home with the, the proverbial wet sail as far as like really tying a lot of threads off. I mean, the, the penultimate chapter is called Healing uh, and, and, and the chapter before that is called Acceptance and it kind of feels as though you, you need to reloop and go back to the start and place where you are now. Even the end, really, the 2019 World Cup, it's a different world, you're in now, because people don't say Felix White Mackaby. Although they do, yeah. they also say Felix White the tail Tailenders podcast. Yeah. Right? So you've had that shift in identity over the couple of years since we were all in Australia back in 2017. You know, I remember when you started that podcast. It was like, oh yeah, we're doing this thing for six weeks, and well, four years on, it's it's a juggernaut and, and all the rest of it. But you know, placing that that moment in time, the final at Lords, you know, you're there with Sachin Tendulkar, all these sort of ridiculous stuff that you get to do now. But alongside making sure that um, you know who you are and what this city means to you as well, and going through the ringer and kind of accepting where you've been and the healing that's come from going through this process, it feels like it, yeah, it does kind of come full circle.
1: Yeah, I think um, what I what I also hadn't realized I, I'm, I realized I came to this conclusion like halfway through writing a book, and um, when I was meeting a friend of mine and I was talking to her she doesn't care about cricket and anything about it. but I was talking about her and I, and I suddenly realized that the arc of it which isn't made up is that the game comes back round to sort of protect me or save me and I thought that was really like with distance like wow was not that really beautiful That this thing my game that my grandfather gave me to like and instilled into me and he's not here anymore and through my mum's death and through all those other things that happened to Maccabees when that's all gone all that f- stuff that you've invested and you feel like you've wasted into this game it kind of like as if it's a living thing like swoops back round to like look after you yeah. and that happened with tailenders with Greg phoning up saying me and Jimmy want to do this show with you Barney we talked about the edge at the start you know he, he said do you want to do the I think you understand the music like the, what this film's about do you want to make the music to it you know going out to Australia with all you lot and all the cricket world kind of finding a sort of home for me I thought like wow isn't that really like magic that that, that all t- like kicks back into gear somehow and then being at the world cup final and this genuinely happened as well. This isn't made up. I had a moment when I realised when England were in that run chase, I really want us to win here. I'm not making up for. I want us to lose, and to be like us all like exhibiting this sort of hurt that I can sort of quietly revel in. Like I remember feeling like I really, what I'm saying outwardly is what I really deeply feel inward. I in like inside myself, I need us to win and so that's the end really and it was just the, the um just coming to the conclusion of how not like a big feeling just a really simple and uncomplicated feeling that was just to sort of be like oh i meant what i said there i wanted i wanted england's world cup and we did yeah
3: like almost the very last bit isn't it the belonging to each other that you know we all sort of belong to the game, and the game belongs to us. Totally, and the people within it, and and you know the relationships that we get to have, and and the privilege that it is to to chart it, but also just to be fans of it, and to acknowledge that we don't have a lot of control over what goes on in the twenty two yards in the middle. But that's kind of okay, and
1: and there's a an analogy there to a lot of things in life, and and exactly. the good and the bad. Exactly, and I've, and that probably was the best place to leave it. But I did speak to Joss Butler right at the end, and he tells me about johnny though, when they're celebrating looking off into the distance and he notices johnny's thinking about his dad not being there and he tells him your dad would be really proud of you man and that that just feels so like i feel that now it's hard to sort of not cry hearing that because i felt like wow so you sort of zoom out of my experience or joss's experience or johnny's and you feel like wow how many people have sort of loaded whatever past or feeling into that moment. It's really, really special. And when you were, as you know, Adam, because you were commentating on it, when we were there and it happened, you could sense that, how much that meant to people in the ground and far, far, far reaching outside of it and how many people weren't there to see it. And that's the power of the game. And it's
3: the power of this book. Uh, It's going to mean an awful lot to a lot of people when they read it. Everybody who reads it is going to be very proud of you, I think, who knows you, Uh, not least us. Thanks for taking the time to go through it with us. Uh, You've always been a a wonderful supporter of what we do here on the podcast and to have you back today to talk about this extraordinary book. It's called It's Always Summer Somewhere. Felix White, it's a joy. Thank you. Pleasure, mate.
0: G'day, guys. This is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
3: Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon uh, wrapping up after our chat with felix white i'm so glad we were able to do it like that and not necessarily in my case through the zoom screen and sort of sitting in the same room as fee a book that you know we've both read and had such a great time looking through when he was in the development phase of it uh and can't wait for everybody to get the chance uh, to read it as well now it's on shelves i think it comes out formally on thursday so you'll be able to find it in all the usual places and i suspect jeff it'll well he, he, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident that he'll be joining you as a, a winner of some of the awards you won a couple of years ago with uh, with Steve Smith's <laughs> men. It is a superb cricket book. And I think the best thing about it is that, as we mentioned in in the chat, it tells these other remarkable stories as well mm. uh, with that common thread of, of the game that he returns to time and again.
0: Well, it, it's a cricket book that's not really a cricket book. And that's... The best kind. Yeah, that's that's the the success of it um i i really enjoyed enjoyed how surprised i was by by it by what it turned out to be i went into it not with with no expectations and i guess having listened to the interview if you then decide to read it you'll have a different experience because you'll you'll have some idea of what's coming but i i think you'll get a huge amount out of it just the same so yeah thoroughly recommend it if you can get your hands on it and i i say that just as someone who got that much enjoyment out of it that i'd like to be able to talk to other people about what they thought
3: yeah and we didn't really even catalog all the people he spoke to like i mean you know there's mike atherton there's Kuma sangakara there's a really really beautiful interview with phil tufnell uh where mm-hmm. Tufus talks about his, his his mum's death as well i mean and yes yes there is that re- recurring theme but yeah it, it's light and shade as, as all as all good stories mm-hmm. are uh, and there's a, a, a lot of euphoric moments uh, on the way through as well. And, yeah, it's a reminder why we kind of do the things that we do. Speaking of uh, and having a love of cricket and a love of actually doing it, we've talked about the vaccine game we are going to have mm. later in the year. Well, I should have mentioned this to Felix in the interview, but we, we kind of were, were quite focused on the book. It's not going to be a vaccine game anymore. It's going to be a final word game. It's going to be... Uh, I, I will insist on everyone being vaccinated. Mm. I'll put it that way. And we'll try and have a balance between... AstraZeneca and uh, and Pfizer and maybe Moderna and Mm-hmm. The Johnson and Johnson out there as well, but uh, the right. point here is—it's it's is like putting a
0: West Indies team together. Where <laughs> yes, like there has to right. be, there has to be at least one <laughs> Jamaican, um, otherwise the, the board will revolt and, and leave the federation. Uh. Yeah, yeah
3: I, I think in the case of the West Indies, I think you've got to have like four, four, four members of the Jamaican team in it. Sometimes, yeah. anyway, um, well, certainly that's how they feel uh, in Dominica and, and Antigua. Anyway, the vaccine game will become uh, the Oval Dream Boys, which is Felix's team mm-hmm. playing against the Final word So uh, I'm not quite sure how we're going to stitch this together in terms of selection and all the rest of it but what i do know is that i've been talking to the captain of the dream boys talking to fee been talking to other players in the whatsapp group Mm -hmm. and it feels as though we've kind of sort of landed on friday the 17th of september probably a 20 over game uh there's I don't think any other international cricket on that day, which means we should be able to mm-hmm. kind of go to the pub afterwards and enjoy each other's company and, and talk some more about cricket. So keep an eye out for that in the next couple of weeks and perhaps we'll have more to
0: say on Story Time this weekend. I wonder if do you think you can get Anna, our project leg spinner, down to to twirl a few down.
3: Well, that, funny you say that because we were we were suggesting doing it at Dulwich, which of course is her club. As we as we learnt um, when we spoke to our old man Mark a couple of weeks ago about the great things they're doing at the Dulwich Cricket Club uh, for women and girls. I, I'd say there's a good chance we'll be playing in that part of London. So yes, I, I'd say that Anna must be part of it. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Maybe well, not. The, maybe I... not. Maybe not the bit at the pub. To be fair, okay. but, but you
0: know yeah. the, the cricket yeah. bit. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I mean, Britain's a pub culture. Like, you can. I'm sure. I'm sure there. You can sit out the front or something. Um, I insist on it being live streamed, which means that it'll be more accessible than Australia's do it in Bangladesh. So, um, we'll put it on the. Uh, we can probably put it
3: on the on the uh, on the YouTube channel, can't we?
0: We can. We can live stream it. Um, we can. Yeah, we um, we can set a, up a,
3: a, a. Yeah. Well, this won't take much doing, will it? We can. Our existing cameras. We could probably have a couple of cameras and Mm -hmm. split screen it, one from one end, one from the other, something like that. And there are smart people out there who can help us live stream it. Jeff, I think that's the end of our program today. First of all, thanks again to Felix for being a a wonderful guest. uh, of the show again to everybody who has reviewed and rated the show on itunes if you like the interview we've done with felix or, or indeed that the chat we had with claire connor a couple of weeks ago uh it's very easy to, to review and rate on the uh on the apple app and other podcast apps as well these days so everybody on the patron uh, page who has been contributing to making this sustainable for a couple of years we really appreciate that as we do the relationship we have Uh, as being part of the Brick Lane Brewing community and being associated with Woodstock cricket. It's all part of it. So thank you to everybody and to everybody who listens week in, week out. Uh, The nice things you have to say to us on social media, it all makes a difference. And and, uh, in what's been a a pretty busy stretch for Jeff and I, we are um, really glad to be able to keep making this show, not only twice a week, but every day, Jeff, We are going to be back on with the Final Word dailies starting tomorrow Mm -hmm. throughout the England-India Test Series.
0: Yep. If you want to hear me losing my mind at 4 o'clock in the morning, (laughs) why would you listen to anything else? They're short. They'll be like 10, 15 minutes. They'll tell you what happened during uh, the day's play so that you don't have to watch eight hours of Test Cricket yourself because we'll watch it for you. That's how it works. We are like the espresso machine of Test Cricket. We make it palatable and we put it in a tiny little cup for you to slam down before you go about your day. And it'll also be on YouTube. Our
3: YouTube channel, which has had a bit of a lull in the last couple of weeks with some um, with some uh, technical difficulties, they they have been overcome. So uh, it'll be on the podcast feed in the usual way and on YouTube as well. Okay, that's enough. Adam Cowan's Jeff Lemon. It's been the final word. Thanks for listening. Let's we'll do it again soon.
2: Yeah.